Hello, 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 and welcome to the Timelines Project, a podcast all about the lore and story of Magic the Gathering, a very fun and interactive trading card game. If you're new, welcome. If you're not, welcome back. Today's episode will be about Time Streams, the third in a series of four books all about Urza Planeswalker and his battle against the Phyrexians. This week's episode will introduce many of the characters and settings that are of the utmost importance moving forward. You'll meet them shortly, so without further ado, let's get started with the topic for today, Time Streams by J. Robert King. Chapter 1, The School of Time. Our tale begins in Tolarian Academy. What is Tolarian Academy? Good question. After Xandra and Rat's death, Urza met a powerful mage named Baron. Together they founded the Tolarian Academy, a school of artifice and magic, in the year 3285 AR. Children from all over Dominaria came to learn artifice and magic at Teleria and assist Urza in his projects. Time Streams picks up about 20 years after the founding of the school, and the first character we meet is a silver man who is just waking up for the first time. The silver golem opened his eyes and looked around him. Before him stood Master Malazra and Baron. Malazra is the name that Urza used to conceal his identity, I'm just going to call him Urza, but for about half the book, he's called Malazra. The Metal Man was alive. After many attempts, Urza and Baron had finally managed to create artificial intelligence. They did this by using Xantra's Heartstone as an intellectual cortex. The Metal Man didn't retain any of Xantra's memories, but instead of being a construct, he became a sentient being, capable of learning, complex thought, and emotions. After talking to the Metal Man, Urza sent him out into the school to see how he would handle interacting with students. Silver Golem walked out into the hallway, where he was greeted by one of the students, none other than the young prodigy Teferi. Teferi was a bit of a prankster, and a show-off. He would do anything for attention, and so he decided manipulating the Silver Golem would be a good way to get laughs. Teferi named the Metal Man Artie Shovelhead, and from now on I will refer to him as Artie. We will leave Artie and Teferi as they tour the Tolarian Academy and shift over to another main character, Joyra. Joyra was sick and tired of the school. She had been at the Academy for eight years and wanted to leave the island and seek adventure in the wider world. She was sitting in her secret alcove on the eastern coast of the island and staring out at the sea. She saw a flash of white out of the corner of her eye. As she looked closer, she realized it was a wrecked ship. Joyra clambered over the rocks and into the wreck. She made her way to the captain's quarters where she found the only survivor of the shipwreck. The man was unconscious and Joyra carried him to the shore. As she jumped to the rocks, the ship slid out to sea behind her, leaving no evidence that there ever was a wreck. Joyra took the man to her hidden alcove and went back to the school to get food. She didn't tell anyone about the sailor, because Urza was incredibly paranoid about Phyrexians, and would likely have killed the sailor or thrown him off the island. Chapter 2 Urza Timewalker 
At the end of the first day, Baron and Urza recalled Artie for examination. Baron expressed concern to Urza about the effect that Teferi could have on Artie emotionally, but Urza waved it off. Oh, by the way, Baron does know that Malazra is Urza. I thought I would mention that. He's the first one to know. Urza had recalled Artie because he wanted to begin his experiments immediately. You see, Artie hadn't been made simply for the sake of being made. Urza made him sentient just to prove he could. But Artie's real purpose was time travel. Because, you know, that's something Urza can do. Living beings couldn't travel through time because, according to Urza, and I quote, Any organism with a heartbeat, respiration, a sequential digestive tract, and a network of neural pathways that rely on chemical reactions is ill-adapted to time distortion fields. End of quote. That's why Artie was necessary, because he was made of metal. During Urza and Baron's tests, they discovered silver was the metal least susceptible to temporal distortion, and that's why Artie was made of silver. The time field distortion device, or time machine, had four main components, each serving a different purpose. Thermal energy provided a molecular time clock, whatever that means. A mechanical component rotated the molecular time clock to create a cone of radiation where temporal distortion could occur. Artie would stand within this cone. A geomatic component allowed not only temporal movement, but also spatial movement. And the final component was Thran. The Thran component added the magic so that the machine could work. After Urza explained this to Artie, they readied the machine. It worked, and Artie watched the whole day rewind, all the way to the morning when he had only existed as parts. He watched himself get torn apart, which was understandably traumatizing. Artie started to overheat, and Urza called him back to the present. Chapter 3 The Gitu and the Golem A month passed. Joyra was on her way to interview Artie Shovelhead for a report she was going to make to Urza and Baron on how she thought a machine could be capable of feeling emotion. Joyra found Artie being tormented by Teferi and a bunch of other students in the meal hall. Teferi was entertaining the other students by levitating food into various nooks and crannies of the golem's metal frame. Joyra yelled at Teferi for treating Artie like a toy, and she led the metal man to her room in the academy. Joyra asked Artie a few questions about how he thought the small stone that served as his intellectual cortex could allow him to become sentient, but Artie was just as clueless as Joyra. While they talked, Joyra gave the golem a metal trinket from her homeland. It was a lizard made of a super hard metal made by the Gitu. Carved into the frame of the trinket was the word Karn. It meant mighty in the ancient language of the Argivians. Joyra thought it was a good name, and the golem agreed. His name would be Karn. Baron came to get Karn for more tests, and also to ask Joyra to be his caretaker, so that Teferi would stop tormenting Karn. Later that night, Joyra snuck out of the Tolarian Academy through a drainage pipe in the eastern wall. She ran through the jungle till she got to her secret alcove, where Carrick waited for her. Carrick was the name of the sailor she rescued. Chapter 4 Time Glitch More months passed. Joyra and Karn had become the best of friends. 
Karn was once again rewinding time. Urza and Baron had made adjustments to the time machine, and it was capable of going back further and traveling greater distances. On this particular journey, Karn traveled back 18 hours and 5 miles out over the ocean. Suddenly, the radiation cone that Karn traveled in flickered out, and he plunged 50 feet into the ocean. He waited at the bottom a while, until finally deciding to return to Teleria. He walked towards the western shore and saw a light. He emerged on the shore and was attacked by Carrick. Karn knocked him unconscious, and then Joyra arrived and explained the situation to Karn. Karn worried that their friendship would end and explained how he got there. Joyra forgave him, and he helped her heal Carrick. Then he was pulled back to the present. Chapter 5. The Worst Timelines One night, when Joy was going to see Carrick, Teferi followed her. On the way back, he was captured by guards. The next morning, Karn told Joyra that Teferi had been captured by the Western Shore, and he likely had seen Carrick. Joyra decided to confess herself and not give Teferi the satisfaction of it. Together, they went to Urza's workshop, where he was interrogating Teferi. Joyra was just about to confess, but Teferi covered for her and told Urza that Joyra had dared him to go out. And so he left to get a songboard for her. Urza didn't buy it, but decided to let the matter slide. Joyra was impressed that Teferi didn't rat her out and took all the blame. A week passed, and Karn was once again in the time machine. The spatial travel of the device had been perfected, so Urza decided to focus on traveling further back in time. Previously, the time machine had only been able to take Karn back 22 hours. As he rewound the previous night, he saw a figure enter the lab that wasn't Urza or Baron. Karn recognized Carrick. He had gotten into the school and was stealing from the lab. At 46 hours, Karn stepped from the machine and pursued Carrick. He was unable to catch him before he was pulled back to the present. When Karn returned, he betrayed Joyra's secret and told Urza and Baron about Carrick. Urza suspected that he was the Phyrexian sleeper that he had been sensing. Just then, the alarm sounded. Carrick and the Phyrexians had infiltrated the school. Karn rushed from the lab to Joyra's room, but he arrived too late. The top half of Joyra was face down in a pool of her own blood. She had been ripped in half. Chapter 6 the Worst Timelines Part 2 Joyra's killer was hiding in her closet and jumped on Karn's back and tried to stab him. But the blade had little effect on Karn's metal hide. He pulled the creature off his back and stabbed it with the lizard pendant that Joyra had given him. Urza appeared in the doorway. He told Karn that Baron and Teferi were already dead, and the only way to stop this was to go back in time and capture Carrick before he could notify the Phyrexians. He had to do it, even if the temporal stress caused his body to melt away. Karn was once again in the time machine, and Urza was working the controls, and holding off Phyrexian horrors who were trying to kill him and capture the machine. As Karn traveled back, his metal frame heated under the stress of time traveling twice in the same hour. Karn watched the day rewind until the previous night came, and Carrick entered the lab. Karn pursued him through the corridors. He finally caught him in the Hall of Artifacts. Karn called for guards before once again returning to the present. 
As Karn materialized, he saw that Urza and Baron were at the controls of the machine. Fun fact, Urza actually remembered the alternate timeline where the Phyraxines attacked, though the details were ha hazy, like a half-remembered dream. Karn materialized in the red cone of radiation at the center of the machine. As he returned, he saw the machine was disintegrating around him. And then came the explosion. Everything disappeared, and all that remained was light. The air became solid, and then the energy and gas rushed outward, disintegrating walls, floor, and ceiling. A shockwave spread out, covering the whole island. But this explosion was different. The destruction spread out in rays. One building was turned to dust by a storm of shrapnel, while its neighbor had not a scratch. The blast was so large it reached miles into the sky and down into the sea. The force of it caused massive waves that destroyed coastal towns 200 miles away. Urza planes walked away before the blast reached him. He took with him Baron, five scholars, and eight students. Karn also survived the blast. It was sort of like being in the eye of the storm. He wasn't really affected by it. He spent the next several days finding survivors in the burning wreckage of the school. Karn and the other 33 survivors made it to the coast where Urza kept boats. Karn had been unable to find Joyra and Teferi, and he assumed they were dead. As he looked back at the burning Isle of Teleria, he wondered how a Phyrexian invasion could have been worse than this. Chapter 7 The New Teleria Ten years passed before Urza was ready to return to Teleria. For the past ten years, the Tolarian Academy had made its home on a ship called the New Tolaria. Karn stood at the prow of this ship and watched as the isle appeared over the horizon. From the island, Joyra watched the New Tolaria appear. That's right, Joyra didn't die because she has plot armor. She had been in the drainage pipe when the time machine exploded. She had had to dig for three days to escape the rubble that walked the pipe. By the time she had gotten out, Karn was gone, thinking she was dead. Joyra was not dead. She had been trapped on the island for ten long years with the eight others who had escaped after Karn left. The group left the ruins of the old school and made their home at Joyra's hidden cave on the coast. But they made a few expeditions back to the school. They stopped these expeditions after four members of the party were caught in time rifts created by the blast and shredded by temporal energies. I guess I should take this time to talk about the time rifts. The explosion that had destroyed the school also created pockets of time all over the island. These rifts varied in speed, but all of them could be split into two categories, fast time and slow time. I feel like the names are, you know, pretty self-explanatory. In fast time rifts, time was sped up. The fast time rifts tended to be cold and dark, because they got less sunlight for some reason. I assume this is because, like, light travels slower in the present, so they got less of it. It doesn't really make sense, but, you know, that's how it is. During her explorations of the island, Joyra found a rift named The Hives. It was so fast that in ten years, it was fifty generations ahead of the present. The slow time rifts were polar opposites of the fast time rifts, which makes sense. Slow time rifts were characterized by bright light, lush jungles, and near constant rain, because, because reasons. An example of a slow time rift that Joyra found 
was a rift where one day passed for each year in the present. She named it Slate Waters because of the stagnant water. One final and incredibly important thing about the time rifts is that water is resistant to the flow of time, which allowed it to flow in and out of the time rifts. The water that flowed out of the slow time rifts kept some of its properties, most importantly, halting people's aging. One last thing before we return to Joyra. If someone tried to enter a time rift that was moving at drastically different speeds from the present, which is basically all the rifts but a few, they would get ripped to shreds by the temporal currents. If they did manage to get an arm or a leg through, it wouldn't receive any blood or signals from their brain and just sort of die because their heart or brain would be in different time zones. All right, I've gotten that out of the way. Back to Joyra. After the first four members of their group died, it was all downhill from there. A pair of young lovers carried out a suicide pact, and a young boy fell off a cliff and broke his neck and drowned. Finally, it was just Joyra and an old man. Just a few months before the new Teleria arrived, the old man died of an old person sickness. Joyra was alone for three months before she saw the ship appear over the horizon. She didn't make it to the ship until a day after it had already landed. By that time, Urza and the new students had split up into five groups and gone exploring the island, with Urza and Baron acting as emergency responders should any of the groups get in trouble. The first explorations of Teleria didn't go well. Each of the groups lost at least one member to time rifts, and one party was wiped out entirely. Joyra found them on the ship that night. Karn was overjoyed to see her, as was Baron and the older students from the first school. Joyra yelled at Urza for being an idiot and messing with time, then agreed to be their guide so they didn't make any more mistakes. Chapter 8 A Temporal Tour The next day, Joyra led the group to the ruins of the old academy. On the way, she showed them the different rifts. You already know about Slate Waters and the Hives, and there was another called Angelwood. Angelwood was a mild slow time zone with lush flora and abundant fauna. It was slow enough that you could enter it without being ripped to pieces. Before taking them to the ruins of the school, Joyra showed them one last important rift. It was a massive fast time rift in a gorge created by the explosion. In the gorge were the Phyrexians. Carrick hadn't been killed. In the ten years Urza had been away from the island, Carrick and the other Phyrexians had had a century to make more Phyrexians and turn the gorge into a fortress. After seeing the fortress, Joyra took the party to the ruins of the school. While touring the school, Joyra led them to one rift in particular. In this rift was Teferi. He had been caught in the slowest rift of them all. In the ten years that had passed, ten seconds had passed for him. Urza declared that the first area of study for the new academy would be research on how to remove Teferi from his temporal prison. Joyra led the group to a hill where Urza decided they would build the new Tolarian Academy. Chapter 9 Tolarian School of Witchcraft and Misery The members of the new school were split into five task forces. One group was in charge of guarding the camp and marking temporal danger zones. Another went to explore the ruins and find anything they could salvage. 
They were also put in charge of constructing a monument to all that died in the explosion that leveled most of the school. Baron went with this group. The third group was sent out with Joyra to find food. Karn joined the team that would build the first building, which would be a temporary lodge. Urza took the last group to survey the Phyrexian Gorge and see exactly how far along the Phyrexians were. All the groups got to work, and as summer ended and autumn arrived, the foundation for the lodge was complete. Baron climbed the hill to the encampment where Urza was making plans for a war balloon they could use to bomb the Phyrexians. Baron told Urza that the monument was finished. Everyone halted their work and came down to Old Teleria. In the courtyard where Teferi was trapped stood the monument to the ruined school. On the front were the dates that the academy had been established and destroyed. On one side was a list of all the people who died, and on the other was an inscription in ancient Yodian. All were silent. The lodge was completed just before the onset of winter. The war balloon had also been built, and Urza decided that the day had come for them to make the first move against the Phyrexians. By mid-morning, the balloon was ready to launch. The crew would consist of seven people. There were three officers responsible for the balloon's position. They would signal ground crews who had ropes to control the balloon's movement. Joyra was the engineer, and there was two cartographers who would do their best to map the gorge for future attacks, and also instruct Urza on where to drop the bombs. All went well at first. Urza dropped the first six payloads and was preparing to drop the seventh. This is when everything went south. To understand what happened and why, we'll shift perspectives to Carrick. In the century that Carrick had been in the gorge, he had changed much. He was no longer the Phyrexian sleeper agent, Carrick. He was Crick. Crick had made upgrades to himself until he no longer appeared human. He had become the ruthless ruler of the gorge, slowly weeding out all those who weren't loyal until he had complete control. Urza's first attack did little actual damage. All the important buildings were deep beneath the castle, which was on top of a solid basalt extrusion. Crick was nothing if he wasn't patient. He fired a few shots that were intentionally low of the war balloon in hopes that Urza would become overconfident. His plan worked perfectly. Urza brought the balloon too low, and Crick gave the order for a volley from hidden ballistas to be fired. The shots were true and struck the bomb bay, triggering a chain reaction that caused the whole balloon to go up in flames and plummet towards the fast time rift in the gorge. The crew were incinerated. Urza didn't have time to save them. Joyra was flung clear and landed on the edge of the gorge. She passed out from her wounds, and Urza managed to planeswalk away. Chapter 10 Nine-year coma. Joyra was put into a coma. Urza healed her physical wounds, but she refused to wake up. Nine years passed, and Joyra remained comatose. The new school was complete, and Urza was now beginning work on some machines to attack the Phyrexians and defend the academy. Karn spent every night by Joyra's bedside. He told her of the many things Urza was doing to fight the Phyrexians. He told her that Teferi had finally fallen to the ground in his rift. He told her of all these things, but she never woke up. One day, Karn decided to take Joyra out to her secret cave on the western coast, 
where she could see the new Teleria returning with supplies. Karn told Joyra about how, despite Urza's good intentions, he was turning the school into a fortification, something he promised Joyra he wouldn't do. Karn fell silent, and then, surprise, surprise, Joyra awoke for the first time in nine years. She muttered something and then collapsed again. Over the following six months, Joyra began to awake frequently, and for longer stretches of time. In her dreams over the past nine years, she had devised a machine that would be capable of freeing Teferi from his time prison. She gathered a few students to her, and they began working on a machine. After three months, it was complete, and the whole academy gathered to see if it would actually work. The machine used fast-time water, and through a complicated process turned it into mist that was then blown into the slow-time rift. The fast-time water kept the properties of fast-time rifts, and created a zone of normal-ish time that people could walk into. Karn and Urza volunteered because they were the most resistant to temporal stress. After a day, they emerged from the time rift with Teferi. Chapter 11, The Day of the Falcons. Teferi reacted badly when he learned that he was 20 years behind the rest of the world. It was understandable. Before the explosion, all his peers had been five years older than him, and now they were nearly triple his age, or dead. Teferi freaked out, destroyed a few walls, then cast a massive stink cloud over the whole school and disappeared. The school was mobilized to find Teferi, but it was Joyra who found him at her secret alcove on the western coast of the island. She consoled him, and together they returned to the school. Seven years passed. For those who want to keep track, it has now been 32 to 33 years since the school was destroyed, making it either 3339 AR or 3340 AR. In the seven years since Teferi had been freed, he had matured much. He and a few other students pioneered temporal spelunking. The spelunkers swam through rivers into and out of time rifts, and they established the first fast time labs that would be key in building weapons to fight the Phyrexians. Using these time labs, Urza began to create various different artificial guardians to protect the island. The first of these were the Falcons. They were programmed to hone in on glistening oil, the lifeblood of Phyrexians. Once they walked onto a target, they could descend from the sky faster than the speed of sound and rip through their target. After the Falcons were Tolarian Runners, Pumas, and Scorpions. The runners were ostrich-like constructs, with blades instead of wings, and ports on their sides to shoot arrows. The runners were meant to fight in Teleria's open fields. The forests of Teleria were guarded by puma constructs. The pumas were stationed in trees and would drop down on any unsuspecting foes. The final constructs were the eight-legged mobile fortresses called scorpions. The scorpions were massive and built to form walls on battlefields. They had pincers and massive stinger tails, just like normal scorpions, and ports to fire projectiles, just like the runners and the pumas. After years of making falcons, Urza decided it was time to make another attack on the Phyrexians in the gorge. They had had almost two centuries to prepare for Urza's attack. The plan was simple. He would do bombing runs over the canyon in his ornithopter to distract the Phyrexians from the real attack in the form of 690 hypersonic falcons. 
Urza began his strafing run and gave the signal for the Falcons to attack. Urza watched as the Phyraxians milled around in their canyon. They wouldn't see the attack coming, and neither did Urza. Out of the smoke came a ballista bolt, and it dragged him down into the gorge. Baron and Karn watched in horror as Urza's ornithopter was dragged down into the rift. Baron sprinted away to get his own ornithopter ready for a rescue mission. Karn chose a more hands-on approach and took a flying leap into the pit. It was all Urza could do to keep his essence together as he was dragged through the time storm at the border of the rift. Then he was falling. He cast a spell that allowed him to fly and descended into the castle below. Another ballista bolt materialized out of the mist and skewered him through his right lung. Urza removed the bolt and reformed his lung and liver. Healing caused a lapse in concentration and he was once again falling. He was skewered by two more bolts mid-fall and by the time he removed, him, removed them and healed himself, he came crashing down into a foul lake. The Phyrexians swarmed him and he didn't have enough energy to fight them off. They took him to the arena where Crick waited. All the Phyrexians gathered in the arena to watch the execution of Urza Planeswalker. Urza had been tied to a column of obsidian in the center of the arena. At regular intervals, two beasts stabbed Urza in the stomach so that he would have to heal himself instead of gathering mana for an escape attempt. Crick spoke to the assembled Phyrexians while the executioner got ready to kill Urza Planeswalker once and for all. As Crick gave the kill order, there was a massive noise like thunder, a sonic boom. The 690 Falcons were already in the gorge, and they entered the arena at around Mach 2. They formed a silver cyclone of death and destruction, killing every Phyrexene in sight. Urza freed himself and looked for Crick, but he had already escaped. Unfortunately, after the first devastating attack, the Falcons lost a lot of their momentum. Literally. Urza was left to fend for himself in a horde of Phyrexians. A significantly smaller horde, but still a horde. Karn was falling. He fell into a lake, just like Urza. But he was not captured, as the majority of the Phyrexians were at the arena. Karn made his way to the arena, fighting through Phyrexians he met, until he eventually made it to Urza's side. Creator and Construct fought an ever-increasing amount of Phyrexians. Out of the sky came a metal cord. Baron had come to the rescue in his ornithopter. Urza and Karn were pulled out of the rift, leaving behind 690 power stones for the Phyrexians to use. Just like the first, the attack had been a failure, and the Phyrexians were better off than they had been before, even though their numbers had been halved. Alright, that was Time Streams Part 1. According to Kindle, I'm exactly 50% through the book, so I think that is good for now. Next week will be a much shorter episode. Uh, I'm planning to do something on uh, another metaphysics lesson on souls and sparks. Uh, and the week after that is Time Streams Part 2. So stay tuned for that. If you enjoyed, let me know any way you can. Anyway, that's all folks. And I'll see you next week. <laughs>